much anywhere you are in the world right now, you've experienced a COVID-induced lockdown. If you're into, say, your fifth lockdown in 18 months, you might be finding that this time it's the worst one ever and that whole we're all in it together resilience has just drained away to FTW. I want to get out and I want to get off this pandemic ride. The pandemic's the perfect storm. And in this episode of Polly's Vague Theories, we are going to enter the eye of the trauma. Hey y'all, Polly here for episode two of Polly's Vague Theories. This is the one where we are going deep into COVID territory. It's kind of topical because in Australia, big chunks of this big island are being locked down as a new strain of COVID wanders its way through, infecting people randomly everywhere. And we are still trying to figure out how to do vaccination, how to do community transmission, how to do being kind and nice to each other. Not sure we're doing that quite so well and uh, not have everyone getting infected and die. It's a really interesting time because we are still in the grips of something which is really something we haven't experienced before as a community, as a nation and as a global population. So there's lots of comparison, there's lots of blame and shame, there's lots of, oh, I could have done it better if I'd been in government. And then we're looking across the sea to places like the UK and the US, India, China, Indonesia and seeing what the various methods have meant for population control of the virus as against population control. But, you know, I guess if people are getting sick and dying, it's doing a bit of that as well. But realistically, we are in the unknown. And you know what the human nervous system hates more than anything? Yeah, that's right. It's being in the unknown. We like safety and certainty. And so the continual chopping, changing, what's happening, we don't know, new strain, am I going to be able to leave the house, am I wearing a mask, all this stuff, I really feel it's trying, it's starting to get people more and more anxious than they've ever been before. If I think about my experience of the shutdown now, of course, I've been in a really non-lockdown world, mostly in Australia. So I really enjoyed parts of it. I have to say, the very beginning of COVID, it was so exciting. And I've, I've got a nervous system that has a high tolerance for change. And uh, I really was like, what's going to happen next? You know, someone who loves entrepreneurship and innovation and startups, it gives you a good, a good indication of how much I'm, you know, not a fan of just sitting in the ordinary and the repetitive. I like it to be cray all the time. So the first couple of months were really great. I always worked remotely, so no change there. And yet it was so interesting to be part of something new that we'd never seen before. So I felt like it was a great time to do lots of self-work, a lot of meditation, a lot of deep diving, a lot of all those things that I wanted to do that I hadn't got around to doing because I was just busy and out in the world. And there were some really definite upsides for me in deepening of relationships with friends, really keeping in a lot more contact, making a lot more time for communication. I felt a real drive in myself to be connecting with people. And if I look back now, I can see that's probably because I was isolated and, you know, not in the world like I normally am. But fast forward to 2021, that was all great in March, April, May, June of 2020. This year, and again, I'm not locked in right now, but I tell you what, I am feeling the barriers all around. I can't travel. I can't work outside the state. 
every time I try and book something in, it seems to get smashed by a new regulation. And I'm just feeling much more edgy and, and in a place of dis-ease than normal. When I talk to my pals who are in Sydney and Melbourne who are locked down and are really starting to feel it, particularly my Melbourne friends who, you know, they've had weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of restrictions. This time it's harder than it's ever been. And everyone, I think, is at that point where collectively we are just not feeling it anymore. We're feeling quite elevated. So there's none of that resilience Resilience is one of those things that we can keep up for a period of time. We have some finite resilience when it comes to how much our nervous systems can take. Some people have very, very little resilience. If you've been highly traumatized for a long period of time, your resilience to trauma and uncertainty and anything that's going to send your nervous system in elevation is pretty low. For people who are generally quite resilient, they're probably feeling this as much, if not more, than people who have low resilience because they're really unused to feeling like this. So not only does it feel very scary, it feels very unsafe. And I think that's why this time we're seeing a lot more people really struggling with their mental health than even in the first couple of lockdowns. And I also feel like this is cumulative. This is what happens when our systems are put under stress over and over and over again and finally we get to that tipping point where it's like you know what I'm not even going to try and get to the top of that polyvagal ladder I'm just going to stay down here in sympathetic in fight or flight and just perch waiting for the next thing to go wrong so let's go back to the ladder and you'll remember if you listened to the first episode which we largely unpacked a lot of the polyvagal science around polyvagal theory but if you think about the ladder, and that's going to be the dominant metaphor for all of this series as we analyse the vagus nerve and all of the things to do with the autonomic nervous system and how it helps us to show up in the world. At the top of the ladder is the parasympathetic nervous system or what's also known as the ventral vagal part of the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve has two parts, the ventral vagal, which is the parasympathetic, and then it has the dorsal vagal, also parasympathetic, The ventral vagal, elevated, happiness, abundance, feeling good in the world, grounded, confidence, striding through, feeling great. The dorsal vagal, think about the dorsal fin, the shark music. And you're in collapse. And collapse can look like numbness, vagueness, numbing out, physical collapse, immobility, just a sense of being completely frozen. So the parasympathetic nervous system is interesting because it's paradoxical. You know, I just love a paradox so much. And I love this nervous system because of it. Because at the one hand, it is taking us into a place of really beautiful equanimity and happiness. And in the other place, it is plunging us into this darkness where we feel so isolated, so alone, and so unable to climb our way back up into the light. Now, that's the top and the bottom of the ladder. But sitting in the middle of the ladder is our sympathetic nervous system, which is the nervous system which is responsible for fight or flight. So it's the place where we go into uh, adrenaline-based arousal that pushes us up and gets us ready to get out the door and take on what is happening. Now, sometimes, again, there's a little paradox in there as well. We need that sense. We need that adrenaline. And we can ride this really beautiful cusp between the ventral vagal and sympathetic nervous system where we're elevated, we're active, we're playful, we're engaged, but we still feel safe. 
much as we can also have an experience where we can simultaneously engage the ventral vagal and the dorsal vagal. And that engagement looks like feeling safe, but also being still. So if you think about, for those of you who are meditators, what it feels like to be able to sit in that place where sometimes I know in my meditation practice, I feel like I just drop in on some days and I can quiet down the crazy mind. I can quiet down the twitching and the fidgeting and all of the body stuff. And I just feel like I slide into this place where I could sit forever and I'm feeling really calm. I'm feeling really connected, but I feel still to the core of my being. That's what I chase when I meditate. I have to say that that interplay of the ventral and the dorsal. So where are we when we're in COVID? Because this is really what I want to think about for those of you who are in lockdown and for those of you who are just feeling really that this time it doesn't feel like it's going to end and it doesn't feel like it's going to get any better. So what are we doing when we go into isolation? It's kind of funny if you think about it, isn't it? So isolation is normally... In fact, unless you are in a monastic situation or going into some kind of long retreat meditation, isolation is used as a punishment. And there's a really good reason for that. Because as you'd remember, we are hardwired for connection. So in our nervous systems from their very earliest development, those nervous systems are designed to be in community. They're designed to be in connection. So the timeline, and I really polyvagaled it, <laughs> emphasis on the vague in the last episode when I was talking about the, the years of development. But I'm going to give you some actual numbers this time because, you know, mom has done her research. So the dorsal vagal is the oldest part of our system, so that very bottom of the ladder place, also known as the amphibian system because it really came from our earliest development when we climbed out of the water got onto the rocks took a little breath and went oh oxygen carbon dioxide I like this that was around 500 million years ago so big numbers maths is hard 500 million there's a lot of intelligence in that ancient system that system which was designed to keep us safe when we climb up the ladder and we get to the middle section of the ladder, which is the sympathetic system. So that system sits in our spinal cord and that was part of our mammalian system. So that developed 400 million years ago. So 100 million years shy of the dorsal vagal. So again, we are not talking down the road last week. These are such ancient parts of who we are. And again, I always talk about how we feel like we're just wandering around in these very contemporary agile flexible human bodies but the majority component of our behavioral systems our neural systems are going back 500 million years you know it's kind of a mind fuck when you think about it only 200 million years ago did we develop this very pro-social part of our brains and our nervous systems the ventral vagal where we could really feel this sense of almost what you'd call philosophical joy it's like we can feel and see and engage in the beauty of the world understand what it is to be and I think enlightened is probably the word I've come up with I know I talked about that a bit in the last episode but it's that place where you have so much clarity and happiness and confidence and joy all of those things that we look for so you've got this really 
primitive system. So let's say, you know, I've said it before, like the majority of our responses are amphibian and mammalian because the minute our sympathetic or our dorsal vagal systems are engaged, the minute they're aroused and activated, our prefrontal cortex, which is where the happy, joy, good times, ventral vagal sits, it goes offline. It's of no use to us. We don't need to be philosophically engaged in the world if we have to escape a tiger. Or I guess I don't know what amoebas would escape sitting on the rock, maybe a nasty wave or possibly, you know, some sunshine drying them up, crackling them off to death. Anyway, beside the point, we'll park that in polyvagal rabbit hole for later on. So we're set into isolation which has always been a punishment because it is the thing that we respond to the worst. Take away community and you are taking away the fundamental essence of being human. This is why the nervous system is so fascinating because the nervous system and polyvagal theory, it speaks to us about our inherent absolute rock solid need for connection. So put us in a house or put us in a jail cell or put us anywhere where we can't connect with our people. And when I say our people, what I'm really talking about is our co-regulating complementary nervous systems. So even if you're, say, someone who doesn't think of themselves as being particularly social, you might feel that you're quite an introvert, really happy with your own company, you can just stay at home chilling out forever. But even so, even if you're not actively consciously engaging in the world your nervous system still engaging you might not be out there being the loudest voice in the party or in the workspace or wherever it is but your nervous system is still moving through the world and having those interactions with other nervous systems having that near reception of is everything okay do I feel safe mm, yes no not sure and constantly doing that in a microsecond way all day every day so when we have the outside world taken away from us and the only experience we're having of other humans is limited to those that live in a house with us, if in fact we have got people living in a house with us, and again, if in fact those people that are living in the house with us are people that make us feel safe, which is something that I think about all the time for people that are locked in houses with abusers or others that they can't ever get away from. We don't get a chance for our systems to regulate. So if you layer on top of that, lots of media talking about how dire the situation is, lots of crazy shit going on in the world, lots of reports of people dying, lots of people of reports of just, oh, this is all fake, this is all crazy, which then makes us question our whole existence. You can see where there's a limit to how much we can handle this. Sure, day drinking was fun for a while, but in all seriousness, now, layer after layer, 18 months into this process, our systems hear isolation and hear lockdown. And there is no positive that comes out of that. We know we are in isolation, that we are going to be taken away from our communities, from our people, from even the people we don't know who we just like to walk past in the street or sit in a cafe with. And we also know the intensity of what is happening to our nervous systems if we're in homes, say, as a parent with a number of children, which many of my peeps are in, that everyone's nervous system is then reacting in the microcosm of those family units as really elevated. So for the families who have got people who go up into sympathetic, there's much more fighting, there's much more tension, there's much more sense of anxious arousal. 
for those that have got nervous systems that drop down into dorsal, there's much more numbness and sullenness or inability to engage or kids being really, really withdrawn. The fundamental stuff is that we are losing connections and that is a slow, painful, terrifying death to us as humans, to us as animals when we're just desperately seeking this connection. So here we all are back at this place again and at the same time we're starting to get these longitudinal understandings that COVID which I think for a lot of us we felt may go away there was some sort of moment where it would either you know disappear like other pandemics have done or that we would have vaccinations that allowed us to just be able to be out in the world and what we're seeing now is that the virus isn't going away. It's staying as a COVID virus. It's going to be like influenza and those flus that have been around for centuries that will always be part of our communities. We're seeing vaccinations that don't 100% cover us, which of course no vaccinations do, but also we're seeing huge inequity to access in lots of different ways, not necessarily in advanced countries, or but we are certainly seeing that in countries that are emerging and developing and the lack of equity that people have to access to medicine. You know, it's it's kind of hard to ignore when we're in the middle of a global pandemic and a vaccine might be the thing between you or one of your loved ones dying. So all of that stuff is filtering into our consciousness. And when we don't have a story to tell our brains, you know, so remembering that the the story follows the state. It's like it's a saying I just love so much. Dowry follows state. So that means that the state, how our nervous systems are, whether we're sitting in sympathetic or in collapse or if we are even feeling really great, we're telling ourselves a story about that. I couldn't be talking to you right now without the story. So to be able to do this, clearly I'm feeling safe, cosy, able to speak, my ventral vagal is really engaged because I'm able to be here coherently thinking and discussing this without going into a place of panic or a place of collapse, and you'd hear it in my voice if I was. So here we are in this place, and we aren't able to tell ourselves the story of comfort. So our state is aroused. Our state is either pendulating between sympathetic and ventral or sympathetic and dorsal. But for most of us, we're sitting in an uncomfortable place of just really wanting a good news story, and the only stories we've got to tell ourselves following our state are ones that we're never getting out of this. We are always going to be suffering. We're never going to feel safe outside of these citadels we're building for ourselves. And we can't even necessarily feel safe outside of our bodies. That story is reinforcing a state and taking us back to a place where we are getting all of those feels that we feel when we are going through either the mobilization of sympathetic, where we are ready, sort of on a tenterhook, ready to strike, ready to run, or in that place of just not being able to move, to really feeling sluggish and slow and unable to bring ourselves out of this torpor of what's going to happen. More than ever, I feel like this is where we really are as a collective. And it's really interesting to see that in people's bodies and then hear that in the stories that they are telling, but also knowing how that is informing the way people are thinking. Is that how you are? Is that where you're at right now? If it is, really take a moment to 
settle in and be with your body. Think about the ladder. The ladder is really physical as well as it's metaphoric. Ventral vagal is in the face, neck and throat. So we're really in the head. The happy good times is in the head, which is where I think so often we valorize the head and the brain as the, the top of the hierarchy, whereas it's just where the actual nerve endings are that help us smile and connect and be in co-regulation. Sliding down that ladder into the chest, the heart, the back of the spine, into that sympathetic autonomic nervous system area. And that's where we have either the warmth of our heart opening or our heart feeling really tight, our chest feeling tight, literally feeling like we are getting ready to do whatever action has to be done. And then right down the ladder into our stomach and pelvis region, which is where the dorsal vagal hangs. And the dorsal vagal nerves, they keep us down there. It's an interesting part of the body because it's often where so many of us have physiological complaints. You very rarely hear anyone going, by Christ, my stomach feels fantastic today. You know, it's usually like, oh, I've got a pain in the stomach. My stomach's in knots. My guts are in knots. We always have these expressions that talk about where we are. And so in that part of your body, that's the part of the most ancient wisdom and the ancient collapse. I mean, it's it's a fascinating area for all of those reasons, but it's also an area that can really immobilize us both in an intellectual way and also in a physiological way. So that's where you might be at. Just be with your body for a minute and sit and feel those different areas. Visually, you might want to close down your eyes. Just take yourself down that ladder of your own body and look and see what's happening. Are there messages? Are there sensations? Are there things that when you stop moving and stop thinking and doing that you can sense that will give you a clue as to where you are? I think it's really helpful when we talk about the nervous system and we talk about the sort of polyvagal world is to really understand what it feels like for you. Get a real vocabulary and a dialogue going with your own body because when you do that, you're going to be able to realise when you're sliding into those states, recognising that we're up and down all the time and what we're trying to do is to not get stuck in, say, a loop that just sits between the dorsal and the sympathetic where we don't ever pull ourselves up into that ventral vagal happiness. Give yourself that minute now and see where you're at and just ask yourself with your internal voice that question, how am I feeling right now around this whole world situation and more specifically, my own situation? All right, nervous system, come through feeling a little bit more in touch and felt sensey and co-regulated. It's really interesting when we really start getting into our bodies. And all of this work, my fascination with this work is probably a lifetime of trying to get out of my own head and get some sense of what are the stories I'm telling myself and what is the actual reality of my reaction. And as I was saying at the beginning of this episode, for me, COVID involved a lot of, of self-investigation. It also involved a lot of being in bed with a blanket over my head, crying, feeling like shit, and really stirring up that mud that I'm sure there is a gorgeous lotus growing in somewhere. But it was a time of real growth as well as a time of sort of, you know, quite a lot of the growing pains of getting through 
bits and pieces I'd clearly bypassed over the years, thinking I was dealing with them, but wasn't really dealing with them until the isolation came. Now, there is a heap of privilege in that. You know, it's a real choice to be able to sit and navel gaze and see how woke you're getting. And we don't necessarily have that privilege when our systems are in hyperarousal or disarray, which is where there is, again, the paradox of the wellness industry and this quest for self-actualization, which I'm, you know, such a fan of. That's my whole adult life. But it really speaks to the choices and the safety you need to even be able to get to a place where you can self-evaluate. Back to COVID anyway and back to lockdown because, interestingly, with lockdown, it's kind of an equaliser. We all get locked in. There isn't like a, well, I don't really think you're in a nervous system state that is going to be healthy or helpful for you to be doing this. So you can just be out there in the world and connecting and co-regulating. We're all put into our worst potential places sometimes with our worst people and sometimes ourself is our worst person. And then we are playing out all of the dramas that go with the stories of our nervous systems in real time. So what are some of the things that we adopt to help us cope with this? I think, unfortunately, a lot of the way we have learned to communicate, well, it's not even unfortunate, it's reality in terms of how we connect these days, are through screens. So we all went to Zoom or to Skype. We did our meetings like that. We were on Instagram. We were on Lives. We were on all of the things that give us a largely asynchronous connection with one another. So let's think about what brings us into regulation and what brings us out of regulation because this is a real contributor to our collective and individual states. I think about this a lot where, you know, I've really pared back my engagement with social media because I notice what happens to my body when I spend much time doom scrolling through Instagram, looking at all the people that I suddenly begin telling myself wild and fantastic stories about how much better their lives are or how, you know, I could have been doing that. And I go straight into comparison, straight into judgment, which means I'm going straight into sympathetic arousal, straight into fight or flight, straight into not enough, there isn't enough, I'm in scarcity. And that's a quick slippery slide down the ladder, straight into dorsal and collapse and numbness. In fact, for some people, just that endless doom scrolling is nothing but numbness. But when we look through a screen, what we're looking for to get to a ventral vagal state is connection. And connection comes through eye contact. It comes through seeing people's faces, their eyes across the bridge of their nose and cheeks and mouth, and looking at those muscles that activate. So when we smile, again, do it all now, pop a smile on your face. Feel what happens to your jaw and your cheeks as your mouth turns up. That is a sign, a visual sign, so a neuroceptive sign to your nervous system that you are in co-regulation and that you're safe. Smiling, smiling around the eyes, being able to use those eye muscles. You know, this is one of the big questions with Botox and fillers as to what we are doing to our capacity to co-regulate with each other when we indulge from the fountain of youth or the needle of youth. But so all of those things are what we really need to be able to come into connection. I need to stand face-to-face with you, nervous system to nervous system, and be able to really just empathetically connect and co-regulate. It's a silent, wordless, beautiful experience that we just do when we're out in the world with people. I believe as a therapist that that is available to us 
using a screen when it says something like Zoom. We can get that experience if we're consciously looking for it. We can have a session and we can see someone's face, we can see someone's body. Our body can get enough of a connection, if particularly if we have an established relationship, to be able to bring ourselves into a place where we feel good. And that can happen, as you would know, even on the phone. I had a call the other day with a friend of mine when I was being really distressed about something. And just having his voice on the end of the phone, you know, consciously talking with me about the situation I was in. He's an amazing therapist, so that was very helpful. By the time I got to the end of the conversation, I was really back in a place of really strong co-regulation. And his calm, steady voice, my nervous system, knowing that when I hear his voice, it makes me feel safe and heard and all the things I need to come back up into that ventral vagal space. I was there at the end of it. So I'm not saying in any way that we can't achieve those states using a screen-based connection, but it's much harder to achieve them using an asynchronous screen-based connection. So when I say asynchronous, what I'm talking about is out of real time. If you're on Zoom or Skype or a video call or FaceTime or any of those products, we're pretty much in real time. There might be a microsecond lag, but let's put that to the pedants. And basically we're there with each other. And so we can we have those types of reactions and those neuroceptions through that screen. We have them better when we can see a full body reaction, but we can get enough for our systems to navigate. And I think for many of us who have been using those types of systems for a long time, we get it. Our bodies get it. Our nervous system gets it. So the story that follows state is coherent with what it would be if we were in real time. When we are just looking at someone's presentation on, let's say, Instagram, but it could be really any of those types of social networks where we're seeing them, no matter what they might be doing, happy, you know, looking like they're having an amazing time. When we see that in an out-of-context situation when we may be feeling quite dysregulated or on a sort of slippery slope down to being at the bottom of our ladders, that can really reinforce a story for us that we aren't enough and that everyone else is having a really good time. We don't have any really good information to go by. Our nervous systems can't look at that and go, oh, yeah, but look at the filters on that and I know behind the scenes that person's having a massive breakdown or that this is just what they do for social media. There's none of that reality happening in our brains. Our brains are just only going, are we safe? Are we not safe? We're in service to safety. So what is happening up here on this day, in this image, and how do I need to respond to it? So when you're seeing image after image of curated Insta happiness, Insta joy, Insta cool, Insta achievement, look what I did, six-figure income, I've got this amazing program, my body's incredible, all of that stuff. I cooked this great cake. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. When we do that over and over and over, it sends us into deep anxiety. And I think it really pushes us either straight down into dorsal where we really just sit in wallowing self-loathing or it puts us into a really agitated state of anger, which, of course, is a substitute for fear because at the bottom of the anger iceberg is always the fear that sits underneath it. But this is what's happening because everything we're doing when we're in isolation, unless we're interacting with the people in our homes, is basically in an asynchronous relationship with what is going on in the world outside with a really small amount of information, which is often out of context. And that's also the news. That's not just social media. That's most of the way we consume information. 
So we're not, I mean, <laughs> this is the real fake news, is that we are putting a context and a time frame for our nervous systems around what we're seeing. I was really thinking about this this week when we've had the whole Katie Hopkins saga. So to catch people up who don't know who Katie Hopkins is, she had come over from the UK. She's a right-wing journalist and she puts the right and the wing into right-wing. Came to Australia to star in Celebrity Big Brother. And COVID denier, hates COVID, hates isolation, but because she was coming to do a TV show which has some sort of economic and employment precedence, was given a visa to come in, had to do two weeks quarantine, so was broadcasting furiously from her hotel room about how completely shit Australia is and how terrible the quarantine is and why should she do it and talking about all the ways she was going to subvert the system involving not wearing a mask when people came to the door, not participating and if, say, someone did come to the door that was from border control, she was going to open the door immediately without a mask, completely naked, just to show them how stupid it all was. So that's another whole story which I'm about to unpack in a second. But too long didn't read. No one really was pro that approach and she was promptly, she promptly had her visa cancelled and was deported. But it was so fascinating to me. There's, again, there's such a great and deep, juicy irony in this that you're coming to Australia, to go into quarantine for two weeks, to go into lockdown in a show that's been going for however many episodes now. I think we're up to episode, oh, episode, what are they, series 13 in Australia, but a global franchise about people who get locked in a house without any capacity to connect with the outside world. So it's an irony in an irony, in a paradox, in a story about people in isolation being watched by people in isolation. Do you follow where I'm going here? So I was thinking about Katie Hopkins and what it is to be a self-proclaimed right-wing denier and also to be a self-proclaimed one of the most, she calls herself one of the most hated people in Britain because of her stance on different things with a real badge of pride. So when I put on my trauma-informed popular culture, therapeutic lens, and I look at the story that's following her state. So she is classically positioning herself as the most hated person. So she gets there before others. She's leaning into that hate. This is her armour. And if the story follows the state, I would suggest that the internal state is one of deep self-hatred because what she's giving to the world is I'm getting in first. You all want to think I'm a piece of shit? Yeah, I'm a piece of shit. Here it is. And I am going to aggressively fight you with it. So Katie would be very much someone I suspect who stays in sympathetic. Sympathetic is her place of safety. So she stays in anger. She stays in outrage. She causes those things which she feels she is. And that's become the neural place of safety for her. I imagine that there was part of her that would sit on the cusp very much of dropping into dorsal, but I suspect that dorsal feeling for her is also relatively unsafe because she will need to keep on causing friction, fighting and aggression to make her feel that she's in regulation. In that kind of nervous system, sometimes it's very difficult therapeutically to come up into ventral vagal because your body your state is so used to being in that sympathetic arousal 
that it's become the default setting. So going somewhere where you are calm and kind and open and abundant feels as unsafe as for some people it would slipping down into sympathetic or dorsal. So for her as the big brother lead character, now never going to get to have a moment to shine on Australian celebrity big brother. And I'm, you know, part of me is really happy for the other participants that they didn't have to deal with that level of sympathetic craziness in the house. I'm sure there's plenty of other craziness in that house. But it's really interesting that if you think about reality TV, there is a, there is a trope that sits across all reality TV, which is that let's say regular citizens of whatever we're trying to do, whether it's be a chef or whether it's to prove our survival tactics or to win a drag competition, whatever it is, we're taken out of our normal lives. We put into isolation. And we normally put through a series of tests which make us either frightened or really uncomfortable. We're handling bugs or we're doing things under really extreme time pressure or we're being manipulated psychologically into situations where we are pitting one against the other. So for a species that is hardwired for connection but really hates uncertainty, you're setting up the perfect conditions for drama. I mean, and, you know, of course it makes perfect sense because that's what TV wants. It wants drama and you get it in spades because people are unable to be in a place where they have got the capacity to look at another contestant or human and go, yeah, I see you. I see you in all your glory. I see you in all your faults. I see everything about you and I still feel safe and abundant and ready to be with and ready to be open and compassionate and connected. So you've already thrown a bunch of people into a situation where they are going to be insympathetic because survival's involved. All of these shows are whittling people down and eliminating them to get to the one who is the supreme of those groups. Any kind of psychometric testing is really just going to be testing for people who have the most trauma resilience, no matter how they sort of cover it up, because it's only people with trauma resilience who are going to get to the end of that kind of a world without at some point going into collapse. Because as we said at the very outset of this episode, we just can't sustain our bodies in trauma for a really long period of time without starting to go down to the part of the ladder that is the part of the least resistance. Some people can manage to live in a dorsal vagal state for decades. People can manage to live in a sympathetic state for decades. And that then just becomes what is seen as an artifact of personality versus being seen as an artifact of trauma. So I look at Katie Hopkins and I don't necessarily, I don't in any way agree with her position on anything in the world, but I still can look at her with the eyes of compassion from my ventral vagal place and see someone who's in pain. It is a terrible thing to live your life feeling like you're the most hated person. Imagine what that is to be inside that experience. And sure, she is polishing that diamond for all it's worth and using it as a strategy for survival. But inside that is someone who is full of self-loathing and full of hate and full of pain and misery and suffering. And it's so interesting how as a culture we love spectating on that. There is some reality TV that I just I can't bring myself to watch even though I do try just from a therapeutic perspective to really understand what true suffering looks like. There are so many what shows would I pick but 
Married at First Sight would certainly be one of them. And I believe that Jessica Power is going to be on Celebrity Big Brother so you can have the collision of all of the psychological disaster together at once. But what we, when we see people who are living in suffering because of the way that they're being manipulated and then we are consuming it, I really think about what that says about us as a culture. Why do we enjoy this so much? Why does it feel so good? for us to see other people going through what is so excruciating you can barely sit still watching it because you're just like, oh, God, not another moment where that horrific thing is going to happen when that guy says that to that girl or whatever it is. That was really my experience of maths. Oh, God. But what it is doing for us is it's allowing us to have a moment of co-regulation. When we see that suffering, when we see that trauma, when we see all of it in its manipulated, screenic, scripted, edited, rigor morris, whatever you want to say about those shows, we can sit back and go, oh, phew, there are more fucked up people than us in the world. There are more fucked up people than me in the world. That's not who I am. Thank God. And it gives us a place to be able to settle back into a slightly higher notch on our ladders for a moment before we get sucked into all of the drama and it elevates us and we're all in it all over again. So we end up training our nervous systems to feel really good about other people's disaster and demise and suffering. And, you know, we've been doing this for quite a long time and it is of no surprise to me that we live in a culture that really really celebrates sympathetic you know, we're not necessarily a culture. We talk a lot about wanting to be connected and wanting to be compassionate and heart-centered. But really, what we say and what we do, we really reward sympathetic. We really revo- reward aggressive fight or flight. We reward that energy, that really hard energy of fear so much more than we reward that beautiful ventral vagal energy of softness and gentleness and connection. So what are you watching on the TV right now? Are you in Survivor? Are you in Big Brother? Are you in Drag Race? Are you in Farmer Wants a Wife? Are you in Maths? Think about it when you go into spectating in those shows, when you buy into the story, when you start identifying with characters, when you start supporting them, rooting for them, strategizing and scheming around them. Because when you do that, you are literally buying into that rung of the ladder. But maybe that's the rung of the ladder that you need to be in right now to help you get through what you're getting through. No judgment, only awareness. Whatever is happening for you at this moment, I hope that you can find some ventral vagal daylight or sunlight or just some peace and light in that. Don't forget, it comes through breathing. We want to activate our parasympathetic nervous systems. So even while you might be there watching your favourite reality show, just be doing a nice, slow five-count breath in. One, two, three, four, five. And a long seven-count breath out. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And see if you can breathe your way up the ladder into a place of equanimity. We know for sure that this COVID business is not going to stop anytime soon. So all we can do as amphibious mammalian neocortex peeps up and down our ladders 
is try and find a way that we can make it safe and then we can tell ourselves the right stories to keep our states as high up the ladder as possible. That's it, my friends. That's Polly's Vague Theories for this episode. Thanks for bringing your nervous system to the podcast party. If you're craving some more pearls of wisdom for your pearl necklace, head on over to the website pollymcgee.com or my Patreon forward slash pollymcgee. If you want to ask any questions or have me do a whole episode based on your vague theories, you can jump on the link on my website, top right-hand corner, Polly's Vague Theories, and send me an anonymous question to be answered. I love it and I can't wait to hear from you. Until next time, stay co-regulated and at the top of your ladder.